They had all these things around them and they didn't need food stamps. They didn't need to be on welfare. They didn't need the government's help. But they needed Jesus' help. And that's where their values were twisted. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been looking at the seven churches Jesus addresses in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And today we come to the seventh church, the church at Laodicea. This is a church that many of us are probably familiar with because of the vivid imagery in which it's described. So let's join Dr. Brogy now as he begins the message, Lukewarm Christians. Take God's word this morning, would you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Most people can at least find the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and the last book, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. But what they do not know is the vast contrast between the two. In Genesis, the earth is created. In Revelation, it passes away. In Genesis, there is the first rebellion. In the Revelation, there is the final rebellion. In Genesis, sin enters into the human race. By the time we're done with Revelation, God will abolish sin in the race. The curse begins in Genesis, but in Revelation, the curse is forever banished. In Genesis, death begins. In Revelation, it forever ends. In Genesis, man is banished from the Garden of Eden, excluded from the tree of life. In the Revelation, he's invited back in, and we will once again eat from the tree of life. The dominion of man over the earth is removed in Genesis, but it will be restored in the Revelation. So we are in an exciting adventure as we work chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this incredible book. And this morning we are coming to the end of the second section of the book of Revelation where Jesus speaks of the things that are are. He addresses seven literal real churches that were in existence when he wrote them at about 95 A.D. And there's all kinds of organizations in this world, but there's nothing quite like the joy, the peace, the fellowship, the intimacy that a healthy local church can know as they rely upon the living God. Such a church is a tremendous testimony. It's a, it has a tremendous power for the living God to influence and to change the culture around us. So here today we come to the final of the seven churches that Jesus addresses, but he doesn't just address churches. He addresses individual Christians. Remember, these were real churches, real people, and he addresses seven specific churches that were in existence in the first century. And we saw that there was a common phrase that was found with all seven churches. It's found in our text this morning, and with each church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says that seven times over. Why? Because he recognizes that any church can experience the good things and the bad things that these seven churches knew. And any individual can experience these good things or these bad things that these seven churches knew. And so people often, I think, unfortunately, rush through these seven churches. Sometimes they'll do one sermon. We've done a sermon for each church, not one for seven because this is so vital, because every local church fits into one of these seven at some point in its history. It's possible that a church could be like Philadelphia at one point, like Laodicea at another point. And so churches can change, but churches typically 
are a composite of what the individuals are. And it's possible for a church to be like the church at Philadelphia, but for you personally to be like the church at Smyrna. And so he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what he says to the churches. And Jesus cares about these churches. He loves his church. He gave his life for the church. And so he gives them encouragement where they need it, and he gives them rebuke where they also need it. And so I gave you, as we started these seven churches, four reasons why Jesus selected these particular seven. I mean, why didn't he choose the church at Colossus? That's in this region we call Asia Minor. It's, it's just a short stone's throw away from the church that we're studying today, Laodicea. Why didn't he address that church? It seemed to be so much more famous. And, and, and why not address churches like Antioch, the great missionary church, or Jerusalem, the founding church, the mother church, or Rome that was a great doctrinal church that had a force around the world? Why these seven? Well, if you're here for the introductory sermon on the first church, Ephesus, I gave you four of the reasons, but I told you there was a fifth reason that some espoused to, and you'd have to wait, and some of you thought I forgot, but I didn't. Uh, We're going to talk about that reason today. Some people think that he, for a fifth reason, chose these seven because they represent seven time frames in the history of the church. So they take each of the churches, Ephesus, and they say, well, that's the apostolic era. And they come to the seventh church and they say, oh, you know, Laodicea, that's the final church. That's the lukewarm church at the end of the age. And they will try to match up these seven churches with seven time frames in history. I don't think that's correct for several reasons. Number one, is he is writing here in the second section of the book, the things that are. In chapter one, the things that were. He saw a marvelous vision of Christ and he recorded it. Chapters two and three, he's writing from the present tense of seven churches that were functioning in that day. But when you come to chapter four, he will write about the things after these things. Metatata, after these things. And the futuristic section of the book will begin when we come to that particular section. And what's also interesting is that it's very difficult to pinpoint and to say, well, this church represents from this year to that year, and the second church represents from this year, and so on. Not to mention that you get as many opinions as you get commentators. I don't think that's what is really in view. So those who have taken that approach to this section of Scripture uh, thought in the 16th century, for instance, that they were the Laodicean church. Well, I don't think so. I don't think they had the marks that were necessary for them to be in the Laodicean age. But with that said, you might ask, is it possible that we are in the Laodicean age? Yes, it's very possible. Why? Because what is true of Laodicea, Jesus said would be true at the end of time. And if you've studied church history, we are living in a unique time and a unique age that characterizes the Laodicean church. Jesus, from other passages of Scripture, affirmed what the church would be like at the end of time. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness is increased. What's lawlessness? Sin is lawlessness, John said. Because lawlessness, because sin is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Jesus warned that at the end of the age, He's talking to Christians here. A lot of people are going to have indifferent hearts. 
cold hearts, what we might call, using this morning's text, lukewarm hearts. Now, some people might say, well, if that's the hand we're dealt, we have to live it. Not at all, because we learn from this particular church that you choose the kind of life you want to have. You choose which church is yours. And if you haven't done it yet, I hope you will. I hope you'll go back and think through which of these seven churches is true of me. And I hope you'll look at it carefully and humbly because let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. What could be true of you today could be very different a year from now if you don't continue to rely on the grace of God. Now, a few of you asked me, you said, when are we going to get in all the exciting stuff? You know, all the blood and gore and violence and, you know, all that stuff, Pastor. We're coming to it. We're getting ready to turn a corner. But what we're looking at is very, very important and we need to hear it. Now, with that said, let's read our text. We want to begin in verse 14. If you're joining us, we're working through every single verse of the Revelation, and we're this morning in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There is a sin, figuratively speaking, that nauseates God, that a Christian may commit, that makes God want to throw up. It is the sin of lukewarmness. So you can see the topic in this morning's note-taking outline in your bulletin is called Lukewarm Christians. And so if you are lukewarm, you do not have to be. You do not have to become a part of what the church, Jesus said, will be like at the end of the age. So three simple principles this morning. First, the curse of lukewarmness. Let's begin by thinking about the curse of lukewarmness. Verse 14 begins with the familiar introduction to the angel, the angelos, we saw it could be used of both a literal angel or a human. Here, he's writing to seven pastors, what today we call the senior pastors, the point pastors, so to speak, and then a local assembly, to the angel of the church and Laodicea right. Now, again, here on the map, you can see there are seven churches here in Asia Minor, the province called Asia Minor, as we call it today to distinguish it from the continent of Asia, Asia was not the continent that we know of today, but it was a particular section of the Roman Empire. And he addresses these seven churches. ESP, that's the first three, remember? Uh, Ephesus. Ephesus is what we call the formal church. They were straight as an arrow doctrinally, but devotionally their hearts had somewhat missed it. 
And so Jesus wants to bring them in line with their first love because they had left their first love. We went 35 miles up the road to Smyrna. Smyrna is what we call the fearful church because Jesus said, do not fear. It was a great church. It's only one of two churches that Jesus does not rebuke, but only commends and encourages. And they were fearful because they were suffering for Jesus. They were being persecuted. They were willing to lay down their life if necessary for the cause of Christ. Then we went another 50 miles north to Smyrna, up there at the top of the horseshoe, so to speak. And we call that the faltering church at Pergamum, um, in the church at Pergamum. And the church at Pergamum was faltering because they were compromising. They were just kind of, you know, softening truth. You cannot do that and be faithful as a pastor to the Word of God. Neither can you do it uh, personally without violating what God wants you to be. Then we went another 40 miles southeast, ESP, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, TSP. What's the next one? It's right there in the thing. Thyatira, right? Thyatira. They were the false church. They literally allowed false doctrine to come into the front door of the church. And so we talked about Jesus or Jezebel. You must choose. Then we traveled another 30 miles to what I called the fruitless church, Sardis. I don't think I'd want to call my church Sardis. Uh, you know, sometimes I see churches that adopt names. I think, why'd you call that name? You know, Sardis Baptist Church or Sardis Presbyterian Church or whatever it might be. Maybe as a reminder, I don't want to castigate those people, but it was the fruitless church. They did not have the kind of fruit that God wanted them to have because they had kind of a ho-hum, self-reliant spirit. Then we came to the church at Philadelphia. Remember that? Philadelphia was the faithful church. Again, it's one of two churches of which no rebuke is made. And so they were faithful believers. That's the kind of church you want to be like. And then we came after Philadelphia. We come today to Laodicea. And Laodicea is what I'm calling the fashionable church. You talk about a wealthy church. You talk about a church with bucks. It was this church. But unfortunately, they were wretched and miserable. Here's a picture of Laodicea. If these rocks could speak, and they do, because archaeologists have poured over them, and you learn a whole lot from the stones and the inscriptions, not to mention first century historians who wrote about this particular place. Uh, it was an incredibly wealthy city. It had kind of a Mayo Clinic, a Macy's department store. It was a Beverly Hills and a Goldman Sachs Wall Street all rolled into one place. They had a medical center, so famous that people traveled across the Roman Empire to come to this particular place. They were well known for their medical care, especially the ISAV that people would get in this place, and it was exported across the empire. It was a Beverly Hills of sorts. You go to these ruins and you see some of the houses were absolutely magnificent. And it wasn't an exceptional house, it was more of a normal house. People lived in very big homes for the first century. They had a, um, uh, a textile industry as well. And so in that sense, they were like a Macy's. They produced a black wool outside of the city that was absolutely a trademark of the place. It was almost a black, uh, purple color. And it was so soft that people wanted some clothing that came from the sheep in this particular place. But it was also the banking center for the entire province of Asia Minor. In fact, they were so wealthy, 
When an earthquake came in 62 AD and the Roman government, as they typically did, offered to rebuild the city, the citizens refused. They said, no, we have enough money. We will rebuild it ourselves." Now remember, this Beverly Hills of Asia was uh, so keen on what they have. They said, we're wealthy and we don't really have need of anything. That's the way they thought. And it was true, I suppose, and that they had all these things around them and they didn't need food stamps. They didn't need to be on welfare. They didn't need the government's help. But they needed Jesus' help. And that's where their values were twisted. Now, this is a second generation church. Remember, this is 95 AD. It wasn't always this way which causes us to act humbly before the Lord. Because a great church today in 20 years could be a bad church, a weak church, a fruitless church, a false church, a formal church. All kinds of issues could enter in. Now, if you remember, the Apostle Paul mentions this church in his letter to the Colossians. Let me remind you of what he said. He commends them in Colossians 4, and he greets them in Colossians 2 and 4, and reminds them of the great concern they had for one of his chief compatriots in the gospel, a man by the name of Epaphras. Let me read of Colossians 4.16. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. You say, did Paul write a letter to Laodicea? No, no, no. Now, you will read in some introductions to the New Testament that there are some, quote-unquote, lost letters in the New Testament. They say, well, Paul wrote another letter to the Corinthians, and it got lost. And there was another letter to the Laodiceans, and he mentions here, and this was obviously lost, not on your life. There's an explanation for each of those. And if you are with me in my course on bibliology, I cover that. Listen, God promised to protect His Word, and indeed He has. But there are some letters, like the letter to the Ephesians is what we call circular letters. So after the Ephesians read it, it went, say, to Laodicea. And after Laodicea read it, it went to another city, and they made their way around. God protected His Word. Now, with that said, let's think about this curse of lukewarmness. Jesus addresses it on three levels. First, lukewarmness is a curse because it denies Christ's truthfulness. It denies His truthfulness. Again, in verse 14, reading a little further, to the angel, to the pastor of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, Now remember, in six of the seven letters, Jesus begins with a personal description of Himself that He drew from chapter 1. And some of you have already mapped that out. You went through chapter 1 and you matched up the different descriptions and which church Jesus assigned that description to. We saw there's just one church that doesn't get a description from chapter 1. That was the church at Philadelphia because Jesus gives them a special commendation. And with each description of himself, he is using that description either to encourage them or to rebuke them because the description that he chooses in each of the churches dealt with the issues that they were facing. And so Jesus describes himself here as the amen. Did you know that was one of the names for Jesus? The amen. It is. The amen because amen 
is a confirmation of truth. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God in him and Jesus are yes and in him, amen. Paul tells us that Jesus is the proof that God keeps all of his promises. And indeed he did. All the prophecies he made concerning Messiah, Jesus fulfilled. Amen. It's, it's a familiar word to most of us. We say it at the end of a prayer. We say amen. Uh, you hear something that a preacher preaches and it rings true in your heart and you, you believe it. And so you say yes or so be it or truly or amen. And what's interesting that Jesus would use this title, the Amen, is he is equating himself to God the Father. Put out in the margin next to the Amen, Isaiah 65, 16. Isaiah 65, 16. It's one of many examples. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Now, I've underlined that phrase twice here, the God of truth. But actually, in the Hebrew Bible, it reads, the God of the amen. In fact, one English translation renders it that way. The God whose name is amen, the New English Bible puts it. The Hebrew literally says, the God who is the amen. So when Jesus calls himself the amen as we've seen him do in a number of the appellations that are given to him in that first chapter vision, he is affirming his own deity. Now, there are many ways to get to the deity of Christ. Sometimes there are direct quotes from the Bible that affirm his deity, but many times there are descriptions that can only apply to God himself. Now, in our English Bible, sometimes the word amen doesn't come through as consistently as it should as it does in other languages of the world. For instance, in John 5, verse 24, the NASB that most of you have this morning or the ESV reads, truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, the King James says, verily, verily, I say unto you. The Holman Christian says, I assure you. The Net Bible says, I tell you the solemn truth. But the Greek New Testament, as it reads in the uh, Slavic Bibles, reads, amen, amen, I say to you. So when Jesus wanted to underscore a very, very important truth, where in essence he says, pull your ear up and listen carefully, he'd say, truly, truly, or amen, amen, because he wanted you to get the truth. Amen is the last word, so to speak. He is the amen because he is God's last word. The writer of the Hebrew says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So it's fitting that Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, should assign to himself this title, the amen. Amen? All right, good. Glad you're listening. So the Lord Jesus, he's the last word. He is indeed the amen. And I say that to underscore in your thinking that lukewarmness is a curse because it denies Christ's truthfulness. Lukewarmness denies the truth that Jesus' ways are the best ways and that they are worthy of our pursuit. Secondly, not only does lukewarmness deny the truthfulness of God, lukewarmness is a curse because it denies Christ's faithfulness. We read now in verse 14, to the angel, the church, and Laodicea write the amen, the faithful 
and true witness. Not only is he the amen, making his word the final and conclusive word, he's also the faithful and true witness. Jesus is describing himself as totally reliable in contrast to the unreliable, unfaithful Laodiceans. Everything that he says is truth, and so therefore he is faithful to carry it out to do that which he has said. God cannot lie, Titus says. Hebrews 6 says it is impossible for God to lie. Moses wrote, God is not like a man that he would ever lie. So he is the forever true witness. Jesus, in essence, is saying, I can only tell you the truth, and I can only do the truth. And yet, when someone is lukewarm, in essence, by their lifestyle, they are denying that Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Basically, they're saying, Jesus, I know you said that you came to give me life and to give it me, to me more abundantly, but that is not obviously true. You're not faithful to what you promised, and so because I do not really believe what you said about yourself, I'm going to find the abundant life out there in the world somewhere. By my lukewarmness, that is precisely what the believer is saying. Now, I don't think that a Christian would typically openly, brazenly put it that way. But in practice, that is precisely what they are doing. How do we know he is the faithful and the true witness? Well, look, keep reading. He is the faithful and true witness. Why? Because he is the beginning of the creation of God. You can know he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, because he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, what does that mean? Now, I should say parenthetically while we're here that this was the verse that started one of the earliest heresies in the third century church, a denial that Jesus was God. It's called Arianism, A-R-I-A-N, not A-R-Y-A-N. There was the Arian race that Hitler tried to propagate and say that white people were superior, the German white people, uh, over all of the other races of the world. That's not what we're talking about, and that obviously error and wickedness continues to this day, and it's only a small way today. You haven't seen anything yet. Before we're done with the revelation, we're going to see that there's going to be ethnic wars across the planet like man has never known before. What we are witnessing in this past weekend is just a foretaste of what is coming during the time of the Great Tribulation. So we're not talking about Arianism. We're talking about Arianism, and there's a difference. And Arian, A-R-I-A-N, was a heretic who denied the deity of Christ. And he would use verses like this. See, he's the beginning of creation. That is, he is created, they say. No, Jesus was never created. When children come into the office, I sometimes ask them, how old is Jesus? What am I digging for? I am wanting them to see that you cannot age Jesus, that there was never a time when he was not, that he is the eternal God. There was a time when he didn't have a human body. That's what we celebrate at the incarnation. But he is the eternal God, co-equal, in coexistence with the Father and with the Spirit. Jesus is the faithful and true witness because he is the beginning of the creation of God. Next week, we'll see exactly what that means when we continue our look at the church at Laodicea in our message, Lukewarm Christians. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our study of the Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program REV10. And when you contact us, please consider a one-time or a recurring gift. Search the Scriptures is supported through the prayerful and financial support of listeners like you. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at lukewarm Christians as we search the Scriptures. <music>